So if you're wondering how it's going to link to Mother's Day, it's not going to really get there. I might have to kind of force it a little bit if I try to. Um, I think in my eight years of pastoring, I've done one Mother's Day sermon, and I haven't done a single Father's Day sermon on, so I'm, I'm out of whack. Anyway, it's... But I could say that God's word is a blessing to all people, including mothers, so there you go, it's in there. Let's come before God as we look to his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that everything that you give to us is a blessing. We thank you that what you reveal to us about your, your things you have done within this world are things that, if rightly understood, fill us with awe. That you would so think of us, even when we have thought so little of you. Lord, we pray as we look at the beginnings of the, uh, the early Christians and the, the things that were, you were doing through your apostles and the things which they taught about you and the, the significance that you have for our life. Lord, we pray that we might hear uh, what you intended us to hear and what Peter intended um, his hearers to hear as he brought this message to them many years ago. So Lord, help me to speak clearly, uh, work by your spirit both in me and in all of us, that we might hear your voice, that we might hear your message, and that just like the early followers we looked at last week, there would be a sense of awe and joy in who you are and what you've done. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, what is the first thing that you're going to do when you see this, and I believe there's a delay. That's there. What happens? You see the sign says, wet paint, do not touch. What happens? Every single one of us, well, is there anyone who doesn't? Is anyone to say, I'll take their word for it? Good on you. You're a good, obedient, law-abiding citizens. But for wicked sinners like me, I touch it. Which makes it probably the most useless sign that ever existed. More people touch it as a result of the sign being there than would have done if it wasn't there at all. Everyone does the opposite of what it says, except for the good ones who put their hands up a moment earlier. Now that sign's probably being put there by somebody who actually knows what's going on. Who actually knows that paint has been applied to this wall or this railing and it's wet. And they, not only do they know that it's wet, out of the kindness of their heart, they're letting you know so that you don't get it on yourself. But here's the funny thing. We think that we need to test things for ourselves before we believe stuff, don't we? It's like, thank you very much for the kind advice. Allow me to check it out for myself and I'll come to my own conclusions. Kind of like nobody knows better than me on anything. I'll take it on board. I'll test it by my own standards because I'm the ultimate authority about what is right and what is wrong, whether or not it applies to me. The funny thing is we don't actually know the extent of the knowledge or the expertise of the person who's providing us with instructions. Yet we keep thinking, I know better, I'll weigh it up by my standards. I want you to ponder for a moment, the disasters would happen if we lived by that principle 
every single moment of our life. Now, both of our children were born by caesarean. Imagine if while I was in there with Sarah and they're doing the things to do in caesareans, uh, I'll just turn that down, just wondering what age of kids we have in here. And, and I thought to her, I said, Doctor, you have got it all wrong. I've watched one born every minute. That's not right. You stand aside. I'm getting in there and I'll, and I'll finish it off from here. Thank you very much. Apart from the fact that that's going to freak Sarah out, that's not going to work out well. But what if it's even more complicated surgery? It's like, I've seen every single episode of RPA. That's not how it's done. I know it's really complicated brain surgery you're doing now, but I've got it covered. Now, we laugh at those ones because they're stupid and it's obvious that no, leave it to the people who have the expertise, who know what they're doing. You're not the ultimate authority on all things. But you'd be surprised how many equally unqualified things, how many things that we are equally unqualified for that we actually think that we know better than somebody else. Sometimes the outcomes of that are negligible, makes very little difference. Sometimes, like the medical examples I gave, it would be quite critical. The times in which Luke is writing and these events are happening in the first century, most people thought they had a pretty good grip, or particularly people who are listening to this, thought they understood who God is, who Jesus was, and what the, the Old Testament scriptures had to say about these things. However, what we see throughout Jesus' ministry and throughout Acts and the ministry of the apostles is they explain Jesus in a way that is often very different than what the general populace happened to think at that point in time. So what's going to make a difference is what do they do when someone who gives them more detail or better understanding about something, are they willing to listen to the instruction or will they, like the wet paint, say... Thanks for your advice, I'll test it for myself and I'll decide whether or not it's worth listening to. Now we're up to our fifth sermon as we've gone through the book of Acts. We've seen everything from some early resurrection appearances and Jesus teaching his apostles regarding the the nature of the kingdom and the coming of the Holy Spirit. We saw God lay out the big mission and says, you will receive power when my spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We saw, just a couple of weeks ago, we saw the coming of the Holy Spirit. The event known as, as Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And we saw the things which accompanied that. There was the great signs of, of sounds of big rushing winds. The signs of like tongues like fire coming and resting on the apostles. And the wonders is the people who were Galileans started to proclaim the wonders of God in languages they'd never known before and people were hearing these things in their own languages. We saw a really impressive sermon of Peter. And for a first effort, that's not bad. 3,000 people come to faith. I can tell you, probably 3,000 people, if they were there, would have fallen asleep in my first ever sermon. But that sermon that he gave at Pentecost was in response to a question that was asked by the people. As the people saw these mighty things happen, they came and said, what do these things mean? And today in our passage in Acts chapter 3, Peter brings yet another sermon 
that once more is prompted by people seeing something, their curiosity is sparked and they say, what's this mean? What's this all about? And in both cases, he points them to what this says about Jesus and what the implications are for them. On this occasion, it's the healing of a man who was born lame. Now, the healing itself shouldn't be too much of a surprise. We already saw last week, we saw, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So it said that this is to be expected. These were things which were happening. But also, it shouldn't really have been that much of a surprise to the Jewish people who were there if they had rightly understood their scriptures and if they had rightly understood Jesus and the things that he said he would do. But all of us, we've got our own stated ideas about what we think to be normal, what we think we might need or we do need. Imagine if I took out a big full page out in the Chronicle, we're never going to do this, just better say that out loud, that says, come to Eastgate Bible Church this Sunday, you will receive a guaranteed blessing from God and you will receive your greatest need. I think we're going to have pretty full building, presuming that people believe the statement to be true. But while that might attract a whole lot of people, I wonder what people are thinking when they read the words, you'll receive a blessing from God and you would receive your greatest need. Now, it might be someone who's doing a little bit tough financially and they think, I'm going to come here and Steve's just going to be bucks going everywhere. Or they might think, man, I've got a relationship. It's a real mess at the moment. Maybe they're going to help us out in our relationship. Or they might think, I've got some significant health problems. I need, I need healing. Maybe this is what's going to happen here. And while every single one of those meet a very real need, they're not anyone's biggest need. Today's message is centred around seeing and responding to our greatest need. In the first 10 verses, we look at a greater need being met. Verse 11 to 16, proclaiming the greatest need. Verses 17 to 21, receiving the greatest need. And lastly, in 22 to 26, be careful how you listen. So we begin with a greater need being met. So the scene begins as we start to read through Acts chapter 3. Just says one day, so no particular day these events happened. But it does talk about a specific time. It was the ninth hour, which by our reconciling of time, we're talking 3 p.m. And it was one of the three set times of prayer for Jewish people. There was one at 9 a.m., one at midday, and one at 3 p.m. And Peter and John are going up to the temple to pray. Now, why that might sound a little bit strange to us is like, hang on, these guys were Jews. They've now come out of Judaism. They're now followers of Jesus Christ. What are they going back to the temple Although you did note last week that we saw that it was still the habit of the early Christian community was to still continue to go to the the temple to pray. Whether it was they're not still quite understanding what Jesus said about him being the greater fulfilment of the temple or whether they thought, these are my brothers and sisters. This this message we have is the legitimate continuation of what they already have and this is a great uh, missional environment. We don't know their stated reasons for why they did that. 
But one thing we do have stated as fact. There is a man at the gate who has never walked a step in his life. The verse, if you read, literally says, from the womb was lame. Now, presuming he hasn't come from a healthy family, I mean a wealthy family, they may have been really healthy. Let's not talk about the health of his family, which it's not talked about. But he's got family or friends who bring him here every single day so that he can beg for money, so that he can get by day by day. After all, there was no Centrelink, there was no disability pension for him to claim on. But there was also a little bit of a genius of what a great place to beg and ask for money for help for people. And the place where you, there you are at the gate to the temple, people are going in to worship God and see all of his goodness and his grace, the God who says to love him and to love others. And then while they've got that sort of frame set in mind as they go past, you think, hey, what better place to cut a cash in on the, the, the way in which they're thinking? Kind of like when you go down to the shopping centre. You know how sometimes you're down at the shopping centre and there's people collecting money for things? What do you do if you've decided you don't want to, to give any money to them? You don't make eye contact. Once you've made eye contact, you're, you're into that conversation whether you like it or not. Now, one of the mistakes I make is I'm not famous for wearing shoes that much throughout the week. And the downside is that is in that situation, they think, in for conversation. Where's your shoes, mate? But if you don't want to get in those conversations, you don't make eye contact. But what we read here in verse 4, Peter and John fix their eyes upon this man at the temple gate. Now he's probably thinking, here we go, things are starting to look good. But not only do they look at him, they invite him, look at us. Now if there was ever a sign that you got a responsive giver, his hopes are going to be pretty high. Today is going to be a good day. But you can imagine his hopes plummeting a little bit. As Peter begins to say, silver and gold have I none. You're here, you want money. By the way, that money stuff you want, silver and gold, the thing that you think you need most, we've got none of it. That's a bit of a disappointment from, you know, you've got someone who's actually interacting, they're looking at you, they want your attention. Now, we don't know if they didn't have money by choice or it was just they were that poor in the situation in which they had. But they've told him that we've got nothing of the thing that this guy perceives that he actually needs the most. Then they go on to say, but what we do have, we give to you. Now, if this was a long, strung-out conversation, imagine if I was that guy who's thinking, well, you've got no money, that's what I'm here for. Unless you've got, like, some food or something helpful, could you kind of just get out of the way you're actually blocking the path from other people who could potentially help me out in this situation yet what they do give undoubtedly was far more than anything that he perceived that he could receive and that he did need peter says i've got no silver and gold but what i have i give to you in the name of jesus christ of nazareth rise up and walk i wonder if this guy thinks Peter's just a little bit crazy. Now imagine, you've never walked a step in your life and someone just says, in the name of Jesus Christ, up you get and walk. Now he's probably heard about Jesus, he's maybe even seen some of the miraculous stuff Jesus has done. 
But now Peter's saying these things. Now you need to acknowledge at this point, saying in the name of Jesus Christ is not like a magical formula that you can say anything you like after that and boom, it's yours. I can't say in the name of Jesus Christ and kill the players, kick the ball straight. If it worked, I would have been doing it for a long time this year. But in the first century times, to refer to the name of someone was characteristic of their entirety of their character. So it's not so much a a magical formula as such, more so that it is what is happening here is the work and enabling of Jesus Christ by which you are being called to get up and walk. Remember this guy? He's been lame from the womb, never walked a step in his life. And it's possibly for that reason that Peter takes him by the hand because if you're that person, you hear someone say that, you've never walked, you're not thinking, oh, great, I'll just get up and walk. But it's very interesting, it says, he had strength in his ankles and his feet immediately. Now, if you've never used your muscles, you've never walked, I can tell you, you don't have strength in your ankles and your feet. I broke my ankle once and I just had plaster on for six weeks, not for my whole life. And even after that, you had to go to physio to learn how to do things to build up the muscles again. Our very enthusiastic and physical 18-month-old girl, Kenzie, can do all sorts of things, but she still can't jump. Her muscles haven't developed. It takes time. But this man here, as Peter raises him up, says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. He not only walks... He leaps and he jumps. Now, five minutes ago, this guy would have told you his greatest need was cash to get by. Now he's got a very different understanding of what his greater need was. Imagine the sight there. Day after day, begging at the gate to the temple, probably unable to ever enter the temple because of his condition. And then just like this, healed, walking, jumping, praising God and freely walking into the temple. You know how sometimes you see like a a healing person on TV and you're always really, really sceptical and you think, I wonder if that guy person was even sick in the first place. I wonder if they just had like a bit of a sore knee, like they bumped it on the bed when they walked at night and now it's like, oh, look, he can walk. Or wonder how that person's going a week later. But this is someone that people would have recognised. He was there at the gate. They probably would have walked past him on a daily basis. They knew this guy could not walk a step. And now they're seeing him walking, leaping and praising God. Certainly got people's attention. If you look at the words here from verse 10 and they recognise him as the one who had been sat at the beautiful gate of the temple. So people knew, yep, he's that one. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. It's a fair bit of repetition there. He was filled, that's pretty full, that's pretty complete, of wonder and amazement at what had happened. So there's kind of intensified, both full of wonder and of amazement. Now, Fair to say, if you knew someone who could never walk and all of a sudden you see him do it, you're going to be pretty, pretty amazed. 
But this is not a response which necessarily means that people believed God or understood what was going on. We see it throughout the Gospels. People are amazed at things Jesus did, but that didn't mean that they actually trusted him. But if you thought being full of and amazed was repetition, as we start to look at proclaiming the greatest need, in verses 11 to 16, we'll see even further repetition. While he clung to Peter and John, all of the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. So full of wonder and amazement, utterly astounded, these people are captivated. They know this is significant that's happened around them. And they're curious for some answers. Just like we saw back in Acts chapter 2, Peter takes their curiosity, their sense of awe, wondering what's going on, and uses it as an opportunity to teach and to teach about Jesus. After all, as the book of Acts begins, kind of hints that the, what is being recorded in this book is the ongoing work of Jesus Christ. There's no surprises here, like if you were present when the, when the healing took place, they'd actually said, in the name of Jesus Christ. But not everyone actually saw the healing happen, they just saw the results. And they want to know what's going on. Peter asked them two questions which at first might seem pretty odd. The first one is, why do you wonder? And like, um, this guy couldn't walk all of his life and now he's walking and leaping and you, you ask me, why do I wonder about that? It's, it doesn't like happen every single day. But even the question kind of indicates, if he says, why are you wondering about this? Is, is he saying, you should expect this? There's nothing unusual going on? Well, if there's nothing unusual going on, maybe Peter's saying, we do this all the time, guys. What do you expect? But then his second thing, he says, what are you staring at us for? It's got nothing to do with what I did. Now he's got him, hasn't he? He's like, there's nothing unusual, nor that neither is my ability. And they're like, hang on, how do we put all this together? During the week I was watching some uh, training videos on sermon stuff and one of the things that they suggested was in the beginning start a sermon with a question that people identify with that people really want to know the answer to. Peter's taken that one on board, hasn't he? He's like, the, you know, this has happened. And he's like, well, what's unusual going on here? It wasn't me. And like, well, tell us what's going on. But at the centre of his answer probably isn't as exciting of an answer as what they wanted to hear. I mean, if you were kind of summarising his answers, like the, this Jesus, whom God honoured and glorified, you rejected him. It's like, the, oh, that's not, that's not real exciting. I mean, we see a contrasting perspective of Jesus in this passage. I've put it up here in terms of a little table. Whoops. Um, God in these passages speaks about how he glorified Jesus, how Jesus was his servant, how God raised him from the dead. Even Pilate, with no religious concern whatsoever, at least declares him to be innocent, to be a good man. But on four occasions in Peter's sermon, speaks negatively of the way in which the Jews had responded to him, saying you had delivered him over to Pilate. You denied him before Pilate, which incidentally Peter had done the same not that long earlier. You preferred to have a murderer handed over to you than Jesus. And you killed the author of life. 
That's a pretty, pretty harsh contrast, isn't it? He's like, this is how God has esteemed and honoured him. He is his servant. And as we've had read, uh, we see the, uh, the servant songs in Isaiah, particularly in Isaiah 52 and 53. And God didn't want this guy dead. God, God raised him from the dead. And if God honoured him so highly, doesn't it make sense that God's people would love and honour the things that God honours? But even Pilate could say he was good, but look at how you've responded to him. It's not really a feel-good message, is it? Yeah, they want to know about it and they say, that God's on this, Pilate's on this, you've done this. You've rejected something which God has honoured and lifted up. If your view of Jesus is something that's inconvenient or a waste of time, something needs to get rid of, yet God honours him, God says he's glorified, maybe it's time to reconsider. Have we understood rightly who Jesus is? Maybe you've missed something. Maybe if you haven't, maybe read one of his biographies, and the gospel accounts in the Bible. Then Peter gives them plenty to consider about who Jesus is. They've exposed that their understanding of him has led them to the conclusion that, get rid of him, he's, he's no good. But Peter opens their mind and explains a little bit more of what they should know because what God has previously said about him in the scriptures. In verse 13 of our passage, it speaks of Jesus as being God's servant, the one referred to in Isaiah 52 and 53 that the Jewish people were expecting and longing for. Verse 14, Jesus is the holy and righteous one. Again, that comes from Isaiah 53.11. Verse 18, he, he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. And you know how deeply the Jews were longing for their Messiah. Verse 22, he was the prophet like Moses. A number of people asked Jesus, is he the prophet that was to come? They were expecting another prophet who would be like Moses, whom they were told to listen to. Verse 24, he's, he's the Davidic king, the one that Samuel prophesied about. Verse 25, he's the offspring of Abraham, the one in which it says, in your offspring all nations will be blessed. Now he, he's brought before them an understanding of Jesus very different than their own. And like the wet paint scenario, they either acknowledge that someone has come to them with a better understanding of something or they decide, nah, I've got it all sorted out myself. Because if Jesus is all of these, has risen from the dead, then you should know and it should make sense. There's no wonder these things are happening. In fact, Peter comes back to that point in verse 16. And his name, and by faith in his name, that is Jesus, has made this man strong whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. Jesus has done this. Not me, says Peter. By faith in Jesus. Now the, the passage isn't clear whether it's Peter's faith or whether it's the faith of the man who was lame. It's an interesting miracle because this guy didn't even ask for it. It just seemed to be offered and given to him. But if the previous question is, why do you wonder about this? And now he's explained a deeper understanding of who this Jesus is, 
That he is the servant, he is the one who said the Old Testament said would come and he would lay down his life to bear the sins of people so that we could have peace with God. And just healing a man of a physical ailment is not even scratching the surface of all that he can do. Not even scratching the surface of of the needs that he could fulfill for you. And the greatest need that he has. So as we look at verses 17 to 21, we see receiving that greatest needs. As Peter mentions their rejection and killing the one whom God has glorified, you can imagine if they believe that to be true, they're going to be feeling pretty guilty at this point in time, aren't they? Like, oh, if God's on it, even we've dishonored, that's not a good thing. But in verse 17, Peter says, you've acted in ignorance. In the Old Testament, it actually made a distinction between sins you did intentionally and sins you did unknowingly or in ignorance. Because had they rightly known who Jesus was, they wouldn't have done that. If they'd come to the right conclusions about who he was and believed that he was who he said he was, they wouldn't do that. But that's the same for all of us. All of us have done things before we rightly understood who God was in ignorance. It's what Paul says in Ephesians 4.18 and Peter in 1 Peter 1.14. Because we didn't know rightly who we were, who he was, we just did whatever we felt like. But rather than Jesus being killed, ruining God's plans, he says, but this fulfilled what God had foretold throughout the scriptures. So to a people who had come to a right, wrong view about Jesus and rejected him, what does Peter say is how they should respond? In verse 19 he says, Repent therefore and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. I don't know why, but every time I hear repent, I always think of a guy on a sandwich board, you know, doom and gloom. It means to change your mind, change your mind, so think, come think again about who is this Jesus? But if you come to the right conclusion about who he is, the change of heart, complete change of your affection and your response to him, which would lead to a change in action to him. If Jesus is God's servant, if he is the one that Isaiah spoke about, who came, who bore our punishment on our behalf to reconcile us to God, to give us peace, instead of rejecting him, we should call out to him and give thanks to him. We should give, give praise that he's done this for us. And if this healing of a lame man brings utter amazement, how much more should the fact that God's own son has entered into our world, bore our punishment on our behalf so that we could be reconciled to God, forgiven of our sins, it says, have your sins wiped clean, Peter said. Like in the old days, they didn't have like acids and stuff that kind of went into the things they were writing on. You could just wipe stuff off with a damp cloth. And that's kind of what it's pictured like. You come to faith in Jesus, everything done, clean, gone. That in itself would be enough. But also, it goes on to say in verse 20, and times are refreshing from the presence of the Lord will come. There is blessing in addition not just having your sins forgiven. And we know Jesus spoke about an eternal life where there'll be no struggle with sin, no, no pain, no death, no suffering. 
And Peter goes on to speak of him as the one who was received by heaven, who had to be. We saw at Pentecost, he said, it was essential. The scriptures said that he had to go to the right hand of the Father so that he could be the, the king, the descendant from David, who would reign forever. And he's begun that reign at the right hand of God. But Peter also says, is coming back again to restore all things. Now, for this guy who's never walked a step, he received far more than he perceived that he actually needed. And now the crowds are finding out there's so much more on offer than they perceived they needed. And in the same extent, they too could come just as powerfully to receive that greater need and just as instantly as the man who had been complained to be healed. Last couple of verses, verse 22 to 26, be careful how you listen. When you look at Peter's sermon, particularly the content between verse 13 and 26, that's his kind of sermony bit, there's a phrase that brackets all of it, where he's referring to Jesus as being God's servant. He's that servant of Isaiah 52 and 53. We often read that at Easter time. The one who suffered for our wrongs, for our rebellion against God. He took our punishment for our rebellion against God who brings our healing, our restoration with God. It's the same focal passage where he's described as being the righteous one in Isaiah 53.11. Now these are Jewish people he's speaking to. They know their Old Testament scriptures. And he points them back to four key events. He says he was that prophet like Moses who was to come. The one they were told about in Deuteronomy 18, that God says, I'll send you another prophet, listen to him, and if you don't listen to him, you'll be cut off from my people. That he was the offspring of Abraham. The one that was told that through him all nations would be blessed. He was the one that Samuel prophesied about, and presumably speaking about the one who would be a descendant of David, who have a kingdom and reign forever. And he was God's servant. I've described in Isaiah 52 and 53. But to come back to the idea of the prophet who was like Moses says, you need to listen to him. We need to see what he has to say about himself, what, what God has to say about him in his word. We began with two examples. First was the, the wet paint. Now we often think that we're the ultimate authority. We're, we see what somebody else says and we're like, I'll weigh it up for myself. I'll decide whether what you've got to say is worth listening to. We also talked about having a church service where he said, guaranteed blessings from God. You'll receive your greatest need. And what people may come along expecting if they heard that. Now, I don't know what each of you think about who Jesus is and what, and what he means to you. Like in our passage, there's probably three separate responses. The Jewish people are described as almost like seeing him as a nuisance, as a, a pain, something that needs to be gotten rid of. Pilate's kind of in that camp as someone who saw him as kind of like a good guy. We need some more blokes like Jesus around these days. Or then there's a perspective that Peter presents from God, that he is God's saving servant. Servant, not serpent. That's a big mistake, snake. If he's an insignificant nuisance, if that's how we think of him, that he's just inconvenient, just get rid of him, just put him off the scene. 
that I would encourage you to think, have you actually looked closely to see what he says about himself? You know, some things are too important where you, where you can't just come to a conclusion without actually investigating them for yourself. If you've never read one of the biographies, one of the Gospels, they're not a long thing to read. At least take time to actually read to see what the Bible says about Jesus, what he did, what he said, before coming to a conclusion. If you're going to put a wet paint sign to the test, which is of no significance to your life whatsoever, when something has eternal significance or claims to have eternal significance, it's probably worth a bit more importantly than your wet paint to investigate for yourself. But if he's just a good man, then he doesn't really make sense. Because he claimed to be more than a good man, he claimed to be God. He claimed to come to lay down his life to bring reconciliation between people and God. If he's just a good man, he's it's not a good man if he's leading people astray with some hopes that somehow you need to trust in him to be right with God. But if he is the servant of God, spoken about in Isaiah 52 and 53, the one who takes away our sin, the one who gives us peace with God, who reconciles us to God, then all of a sudden this becomes our greatest need. It's easy to think, ah, oh, it's not a need for me, but man, I know people who need, need a Jesus like him. They're, they're bad, they're wicked. But just to look at it, it's just a small part of Isaiah 52 and 53. And I encourage you, if you're not familiar with those chapters, to, to take a look at them. Reading verses 5 and 6 of Isaiah 53. It says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So it says, speaks about the one who was pierced for our transgressions. His punishment was for ours. And you don't need to wonder about who does this apply to. It says, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. And it tells us what that looks like. Each has gone his own way. That makes sense, doesn't it? Name a single person who doesn't want to go their own way and do their own thing. We often say prayed about it. We love to sing about it. Frank Sinatra, you know, I did it my way. He kind of that big claim. We like to talk about what we did. Want to know an interesting thing? Every single evil and wicked thing that's ever happened in this world has been the result of someone doing it their own way. There have been things that people have done because they felt like it. Now, I know there's a big spectrum of what one person feels like doing another person. We don't all feel like doing major atrocities. But we all feel like going our own way. We don't like others telling us what to do. Who likes being told what to do? See, even people who are trusting in Jesus Christ still don't like it. I remember a very defining moment in my life. I was in the early 90s. Sorry if you weren't even born then. Back when they had these concerts called The Big Day Out and there was a band playing. I'm not going to say the band or the song because it's going to put things in your mind you don't need. But I remember there being amongst a big crowd of people and everyone's, there's, a, there's a part at the end of the song where it's got a, 
I won't do what you're telling. It's just repeated around and everyone's like, yeah, this is me. It kind of felt liberating at the time. It's what's deeply within all of us. But think about this. We're saying we don't want the author of our life, our maker, our creator, to tell us how to live the life that he gave us. Does that sound a bit weird? We don't want the one who gave us life to tell us how to live the life. If you want me to illustrate that, let me picture it a little bit like this. Imagine a car rebuking a manufacturer or a mechanic saying, no, forget what the service book says, I don't need oil. I don't feel like I need it. It's not doing me any good. Don't want petrol. Don't need your help. That's what, it, that's what it looks like. When we, if we are created by God, if we say, I don't want you to tell me how to live the life that you have made. Because he might actually know what's best for it better than we do. Everything he calls for us is for our good. Yet so often we refuse his goodness and refuse the idea of him leading us into those goodness. When this lame man walked, people took action. They noticed. They got their attention. How much more, when Jesus enters into the world, deals with our biggest problem of our sin, our separation from God, and then raised again from dead three days later, that's got to get some attention. That's worth taking a look at. You've got to at least investigate it if you've never considered it. If it's true, then you've come to see your greatest need. And just like this layman, you can have it here and now. But if you, for those of you who do realise Jesus is your greatest need, can I encourage you, does your life look like it's your greatest need? Now, some people might say, what's your greatest need? People say food, water, shelter. And they're good things. We do need these things. You try going without them, you're going to be in all sorts of trouble. But people can tell that I think those things are a need and important because every day I eat. You'll be pleased. No, I put on clothes. You probably don't care whether or not I've got, I've got shelter or not. So does our pursuit of God look like he is our greatest need, that we are clinging to, that we are hungering and feeding on him on a daily basis. He is my greatest need. Let us feast on him, his goodness, with thanks. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, you have given us more than we ever thought we could have. And Lord, even as we start to ponder, even if we do trust in you, some of the things that might, you might have ahead for us in eternity, the best that we can imagine in our minds, not even going to be slightly close to what you have prepared for us. Lord, I don't understand why we will put something to test so insignificant as wet paint. It's so often we don't consider to examine for ourselves who Jesus Christ is, who claims he is the way to God, the way to eternal life, the one who sets us free from sin and judgment. Lord, we thank you if we have trusted in you that, that you have provided our deepest need. 
May it be apparent in the way in which we live our lives. May we draw on you just like we draw on food and water. We cannot go without you. And Lord, as you so healed one man from a physical ailment, but Lord, that you are willing and able to heal us from our deepest problem of their sin which separates us from you and destroys our relationships with others. And we thank you that you are a God who loved us so much that you would send Jesus for us. And in his name we pray. Amen.